Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. This week's guest is John Kim. He uh, is a wealth management guru kind of guy, uh, very knowledgeable. He's got a website called uh, smartknowledgeu.com. That's the letter U, smartknowledgeletteru.com. You can learn about his uh, different things going on there. He, He has a blog where he talks about investments and uh, how to protect yourself against currency manipulations and uh, fiat currency, which is, I guess, paper money versus gold and silver and other precious metals. He knows a lot about this stuff. I don't know shit about it. Uh, If I did, I'd be rich. Rich, I tell you. Man, so many opportunities I've lost in, in my life. I didn't lose them. I never had them. I mean, I when I first moved to Barcelona... I uh, I rented this apartment, top floor apartment in a building without an elevator, right in the center, Montaner and uh, Valencia, for those of you who know Barcelona. I lived there for four or five years, I think. And uh, that apartment, I could have bought it for uh, $20,000, $30,000, something like that. And now it's probably worth 150000 it's just if I had money, wow, if I had had money in those days, Barcelona real estate went through the roof. But I didn't. I had no money. And I also didn't even know if I was going to still be there a year from then. So there was no sense in investing. I'm, I was never an investment guy, which may come to bite me in the ass as I approach old age and poverty. We'll see. I married a doctor. I thought that would probably solve my problem. But <laughs> the doctor who's been on sabbatical for a few years now. Anyway, uh, the point is not for me to complain about my investment acumen or lack thereof. The point is to tell you that John Kim uh, comes to us from Bangkok by way of Philadelphia, Austin, and Beverly Hills. And uh, he's got quite a, bu- uh, quite a bit of interesting information about this kind of stuff, some good stories, and he's a very smart guy who makes... The incomprehensible seems simple. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, Some uh, housekeeping stuff to talk about before we get into it. If you want to support the podcast uh, and its impoverished uh, host who has no investments and um, doesn't have, I don't have any gold, zero gold. If you want me to have gold, and I know you do, you can support the podcast at fundwhatyoulove.com, fundwhatyoulove.com. That's a place where you can just drop a nickel or a dime or a dollar or whatever you can afford into this virtual jar. And every month I'll get a dollar or they'll you know t- take a dollar or five dollars or whatever off your credit card. That gives me an operating budget for the podcast, which is a wonderful thing to have. 85 people have signed up already and i appreciate and love every one of you if you don't want to do a recurring kind of thing and just want to 
make a one-time donation, you can do that through my website, chrisryanphd.com. Go to Tangentially Speaking, and you'll see it on the right margin. There's a couple different donate buttons, one through PayPal, one through Stripe, whatever whatever you prefer. And if you uh, don't uh, want to do that, or you've already done it, or you're too poor to do it, or whatever, uh, if you buy stuff at Amazon, you can go to my site, click on the Amazon link, and uh, we'll get a percentage of everything you spend at Amazon, which is very cool. So it won't cost you a dime, but it'll send a dime to me. So appreciate all of you who uh, contribute to the podcast in whatever way. I did two interviews this morning with uh, the first two uh, veterans that I've been talking about recently. I finally lined those up. I'll be doing a few more in the next week or so. So I'll uh, pepper those, you know, drop those in. I won't like pull them out week after week, but uh, the first two were very interesting, very uh, open, intelligent guys. And not at all sort of like macho military dudes. Now, I uh, that's not a reflection probably of military culture. It's more a reflection of the kind of people who listen to this podcast. So I don't claim that that's uh, any sort of representative sample, but very interesting, well-spoken, thoughtful uh, gentlemen. And uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy those episodes a lot. Now, I've been thinking about doing a project. Now, I the last thing I need is another fucking project, right? As you know, you've heard me whining about how far beyond deadline I am on this book. So I need to, to stay focused on the book. But a lot of people don't listen to podcasts. I'm one of them. I rarely listen to podcasts. Who has time? You know, unless you have a job or you're in a situation where you can be listening to people talking while you work or while you drive or whatever. Um, you know, and I understand a lot of people are in those positions, so uh, they enjoy podcasts, and it's I'm glad. But I'm I'm not one. I don't I don't commute, and I can't listen to people talking when I'm writing. It you know distracts me. So, um, but I've had so many great guests on this podcast, so many wonderful conversations that have blown my mind. Um, and I was thinking it would be an interesting project to take some of the best ones, maybe 20, 25, and excerpt the most interesting um, passages, the points of the conversation, and make it into a book so that uh, you can give a book to people, friends that you think might be interested in this stuff, but don't listen to podcasts. A lot of people don't even know what a fucking podcast is, right? Um, so anyway, that's my idea. And I was thinking, I can't, I don't have time to to work on it right now, but if there's someone out there who's listening to this and listen carefully, because this isn't a job offer. This is, we could do a project together. You do 95% of the work and you get half the money. The other half of the money goes to support the podcast, but you have to be a special person. You have to be someone who's got the time to devote to this, which means either you got money coming in from somewhere else or, you know, whatever. You're not, you're not going to do this for income. Uh, it would be, it would mean going back, looking at the episodes that, uh, we agree are representative and interesting. Listen to those again. Pick the, the section that you think is the most compelling. Transcribe it. Send it to me. We agree on the final thing that we're going to use, the final passages we're going to use. 
Then uh, I've got releases for a lot of guests, but some guests I didn't bother to get a release from. So if we need releases from those guests, you'd need to email them. And, uh, you know, I'd obviously, or I could email them, whatever. But the point is you'd be doing the work. Um, and ideally, I'd like to have somebody who's got some knowledge or experience with self-publishing. Because I don't want to take this to a publishing house. I, I think we can do this independently, print-on-demand books, ebooks, and uh, split the money down the middle. You and me, your name on the cover, my name on the cover, and the names of our guests. So if that's something that interests you, drop me a line. It might be a month or two before I get a chance to respond to you. And and honestly, my email volume at this point is such that I've had to bite the bullet and realize I'm not going to respond to every email I get. I just can't do it. I can't afford an assistant. Um, so I'm not even going to fake it and have somebody else pretend to be me. Uh, I'm just uh, going to face the fact that I can't. I'm sorry. I can't answer all the emails. Um, but those of you put in the subject heading um, book idea. So I'll know and I'll put those all in the same uh, folder and I'll look at those when I get a chance. So please don't offer your services if you're looking for a job or if you have no clue uh, about how to do any of this. I'm ideally looking for someone who's got some experience with self-publishing, knows how it works, uh, is a good typist so you can transcribe the, the stuff and you're doing most of the work. I'm in the back seat. You call on me when you need me, but most of it's going to be your project. And then we'll share the money and share the credit and hopefully be friends forever after. All right. It's going to be a brief rant this week. I think I'm just going to leave it at that. Uh, hope you're doing well. Hope you enjoy this episode. And I hope if you can afford it, you support the podcast. If you can't afford it, don't worry about it. Thank you for listening. Thanks for telling your friends. And I'll catch you next week. All right. I am here with John Kim here. What do I mean by here? I'm, I'm sitting in Portland and John is sitting in Bangkok. So uh, you, you decide what here means. <laughs> we are in, you know, some meta environment, some other world. Uh, welcome, John. Thanks for doing this. Sure. Thanks for having me on. I uh, first heard about you from your friend who runs the, what's the name of the float center there? The Theta? Uh, Theta Flotation Center. All right. Well, let's give them a shout out. It's the first float center in Bangkok uh, that was started by uh, a friend of mine and his buddies who I've, I, I haven't, I've met a few of them uh, when they were over here in Portland for the, the float conference. Um, but I haven't met the, the, your friend who sent me the email about you, and, and that's what got us all together. Um, but you were, we were just talking before I turned on the the uh, recorder about um, the experience of floating. You've done it once, but you bought a four-pack, right? Correct, correct. Yeah. Well, and just to give him a proper shout-out, it is the Theta Float Center, and in Bangkok, it's located on Sukhavitsoi 24. So. Ah, Sukhavitsoi. That's a major thoroughfare, as I recall. Yes. Yeah. So cool. It's well, I downtown Bangkok. Yeah. I encourage everybody, if you're in Bangkok or passing through, definitely go check them out. They're really cool guys, and... Uh, 
from what I've seen online, I've been following them on Instagram. They've got uh, state-of-the-art installations, super clean and beautiful. And Yeah, it's a great relaxing place. And they have four rooms. So they have two pods, and then they have for people that are claustrophobic two, two float rooms, actually. So you're not in an enclosure, but you're you know floating in a rectangular room. Yeah, a lot of people, when they hear about floating, they think it's these, like, coffins, like it used to be in the 70s, but it's it's not at all. I've Even here in Portland, the place I go to has rooms. It's it's like a, a small bedroom, you know, high ceiling, you can stand up. Fantastic. Very interesting experience. Um, anyway, so so what what got you to Bangkok, man? You, you don't sound Thai to me. No, no, actually, I grew up in Philly. So I was born <laughs> and raised in Philly. And uh, through my progression of living in the U.S., I actually uh, moved west. So I went to school in Philly, then went to grad school in Austin, Texas. And then I moved to San Francisco and Los Angeles. And then I was working for uh, a Wall Street firm in Beverly Hills. But then that was enough to get me out of the rat race in the corporate world (laughs) because I really did not like it. So uh, I spent some time when I was in grad school in Asia. And I loved being out here. So I just wanted to make a change. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to get out of corporate rat race forever. So I just moved over here. Wasn't sure if I was going to start some you know, businesses with friends of mine that were already here or do my own thing. But I just ended up doing my own thing. So that's kind of how I got here in a nutshell. And how, how long were you working at the financial firm in Beverly Hills? I was only there for a couple of years, but prior to that, I was a private banker at Wells Fargo for several years as well. Uh, so, and you study finance in college? Actually, I studied neurobiology. What? <laughs> yeah. So I was on that pre-med track for a while, and I actually worked in healthcare in Philly in some of the most uh, high crime rate impoverished communities in Philly, which was a great experience, actually, for me, because we were a community health provider that provided health care services uh, to areas that basically had no health care providers there. So no hospitals, no other viable health care services. And uh, it was it was a great experience for me. Were you at Penn? At Penn? Yeah, I went to school at Penn, but I wasn't in Wharton. I was in the College of Arts and Sciences. Oh, okay. Right. So what moved you from pre-med to finance? Uh, Basically, I I didn't really want to uh, be a doctor. It was just a lot of pressure uh, for me um, by my family to become a doctor when I was younger. And so uh, when I got out of school, um, I stayed kind of, I guess, relatively you know, in that field in healthcare. But after four years in healthcare, then I went back to school and business school. And, and even then, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. But I knew I wanted to get in some kind of business helping people. And I found the community banking. I didn't know much about community banking, but I thought, okay, that's a way to start. Um, so I did an internship in community banking, but then I went to private banking when I actually um, got my job. So, you know, the, the funny thing is it took me a long way to find my path because um, I think education really does a horrible job of helping people discover their passions because it's so career oriented, right? That yeah. most people are just driven to explore, I guess, areas where they feel they can make the most money when they come out of college. And I guess part of that has to do with the fact that college in America is just super expensive, right? So if you come out with 
50K in student loans, you got to basically work corporate. Yeah, yeah, it's... You're right, and and you think about the the amount of lost opportunity that this country suffered because of so many highly intelligent people going to Wall Street instead of going into research or you know engineering or whatever things that could actually uh, you know make a positive change in the culture yeah, exactly. as opposed to yeah. you know mergers and acquisitions and take your percent you know take your cut of a 500 million dollar deal and you know like yeah sure you can do that but who gives a shit you know <laughs> exactly exactly yeah it's a shame because i really do think that there'd be a thousand steve jobs out there if people actually pursue their passion rather than just pursuing whatever they think they can make the most money right doing and the culture tells you you're a fool if you walk away from a pile of money. Yeah, well, I guess I'm a fool because that's what I did when I left Wall Street. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. I did it too, man. I was, uh, I, I mean, I won't tell my story here, but I, I had a job in, uh, in Manhattan and I was working. I was sort of the right-hand man to this very wealthy guy. And I was in my 20s and I, I just fell into this job by accident, basically. And uh, he and I became friends and he trusted me. And as I'm sure you know, at very wealthy people have very few people they can trust. And uh, so the fact that he trusted me made me extremely valuable to him. And he kept, you know, offering me more and more money and so on. And but I, I was interested in the job for the first year, but then I got bored and I wanted to go and travel and do things. And um and anyway, we were having dinner one night and I was sort of, you know, dealing with this conundrum. And he said to me, he said, listen, Chris, how old are you? I said, I'm 27. He said, all right, listen, by the time you're 30, you'll have a net worth of a million dollars. And if you don't, I'll write you a check for the difference. I'll put it in writing. You just wow. stay here and keep working. <laughs> that <was> like, Fuck. <laughs> I would have spent all my money that stayed in that <laughs> worth a zero and you have to write me a check for a million <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea see I, i'm so bad with money that didn't even occur to me right <laughs> that's why he trusted me he knew i wouldn't steal it i mean that was the enigma of the whole thing the reason he trusted me was he knew i didn't care about money so i wouldn't like fuck him you know yeah 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 but anyway so how old are you Oh, right now I'm in my mid forties. So. Mid forties, okay. So when when did you have this epiphany? Like, fuck, I got to get out of here. I got to do something else. I guess mid thirties, like uh, ten years ago. All right, yeah, that's a good time. Because I've been it. out in Asia about ten years. Ah, uh, okay. And it's funny because when I left, um, I my boss almost had the same discussion with me. He he was like, I don't understand why you're leaving because he said within. He said, I can't guarantee you this. He didn't give me that guarantee like you're the person you work with gave you. But he said, pretty much, you know, you'll be earning at least mid six figures, you know, in several more years if you just stay here. Like I never was like, you know, in the in the area where I was earning millions. But, you know, I was still earning decent money. But he said, you know, at least half a million in several more years if you stay here and you'll, you know, probably be earning could have the potential to earn, you know, a million or more a year if you stay. But wasn't worth it. So what was that like for you that, that, uh, you know, I mean, how did you know that that was the wrong path for you? Well, the thing is when I, when I went into, well, first of all, I just didn't have passion for it. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like I woke up every day. It was like, I was 
on Monday morning, I was looking forward to Friday afternoon, right? <laughs> so I was like, I can't live my life like this. I was like, I'll shoot myself if I'm still here in 10 years. Secondly, there was so much like just garbage that I was being taught, you know, when I was there. Because I was always kind of curious and I always felt like I learned way more just from reading on my own and doing research on my own than I ever learned at University of Pennsylvania or University of Texas and in uh, my master programs that I did there. So I remember like my boss would say at the time, he would say, oh, if it's a, you know, if it's looking like a bullish year for the stock market, tell your clients like 8% returns. But if it's looking like, you know, an average year, tell them 6% returns. But I remember like, you know, just investigating stuff on my own and um, looking at what like true inflation rates are, because I never bought what the government was telling us what the inflation rates are. And there's actually a company out there called Shadow Stats that actually calculates what real inflation is in the U.S. And all they do is they use official government formula from like 1980. But the government's actually, over the years, changed that formula dozens of times to strip away components of inflation from the inflation formula. So they give you some bogus, you know, they strip away like energy costs. They change from uh, an average weighting to, uh, you know, they they weight uh, food items less that go up more in price. So they skew everything to strip out inflation. So if you looked at those real inflation rates, during the years I was there in the early 2000s, you know, inflation every year in the U.S., real annual inflation was like 9%, 8%. So I said, okay, if our goal, if I'm telling my clients 6% returns is our goal, then our goal is to lose clients' money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Because the real wealth that they're building, the real net net is negative. You know, if inflation is higher than what the returns are trying to get. So I was like, how can this be? And so I started investigating a lot more you know, besides just the stuff on a daily basis, I would see, you know, I see people joke all the time. Hey, you know, because we sold everything. The whole thing was like cross sell, cross sell everything. And people say, hey, this life insurance policy by like ING was the best for the client. But I got more commission from this product. This product will pay my mortgage. And then they just laugh about it. You know, these are clients that they've had for years that trusted them to do the right thing. And you and I would hear stuff like this all the time, almost daily happening i was like this environment is not for me so who were your clients Uh, a lot of my clients were my friends too so i know i'd never climb the corporate ladder because i always did the right thing for them Uh, you know it's a private banker i remember there's one deal i had like a two million dollar loan to this guy that i think the commission i believe i can't recall the top of my head but it was somewhere around like eight thousand dollars simple deal half hour meeting i get eight thousand in my pocket but the deal didn't make any sense so i told the client not to do it and I know that's not the way to rise up the corporate ladder because the client was elderly. I was like, this might bankrupt this guy. I'll have to go back to work at like 80, you know? Yeah. So I always felt like I needed to do what was right for my clients. And I always saw the people promoted within, you know, because I work for Wells Fargo and I work for Smith Barney. The people promoted that would, you know, do the things that were wrong for their clients, but made the most money for the bank. Well, that's it. You're working for the bank. Yeah. I mean, you made a really important point there about inflation rates and how people take these numbers because they hear them on the radio, they hear them, see them on TV, whatever, and they take them as if it's some sort of a an unbiased, objective, scientific measure. Um, but I, I learned about this. Uh, I've been living in Spain for a long time, and I see how the U.S. unemployment rate is 6.9%, and in Spain it's 18.7%, and like, wow, 
you know, but I travel between these two countries and I don't really see I don't see how the U.S. unemployment rate is so much better than in Spain. And then I dug into it a little bit and I see that it's the way they measure it in the U.S. Yeah, in the U.S. they don't count people who aren't looking for jobs. Even though they're unemployed. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. So it's, it's like it's even worse. If, you, if it's been so long since you've had a job that you don't even bother anymore, then it seems to me you should count double. But in the U.S. it doesn't <laughs> count at all. Exactly. Because if you look at the eligible age, which is, uh, you know, 18 to I don't know what, in the 50s or something, if you look at that population, that demographic in the U.S. and then the amount of people actually working, it's a pretty low percentage. Yeah. You know, so if you can't get unemployment on that, it's multiples higher than, you know, that six, seven percent or whatever they say it is. Yeah, it's complete bullshit. And and like just recently, I mean, this is in the news now because I'm sure you've seen the congressional budget office the since the republicans came in they're changing the way they estimate uh the effects of these different uh, policy changes with something called dynamic scoring you know which sort of harkens back to the reagan administration playing with the numbers you know because if we give more money to the the upper one percent of one percent then it'll trickle down to the rest of us and all this bullshit yeah. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Anyway, so now you're I'm just trying to get your your progression here. So you, you go to college, you're doing pre-med and then you decide that's nah, not really for me and then you go to Texas and you're doing um what was it a, a business administration degree? Yeah, actually I got a double master. So I got a master in business administration and a master in public policy at the public, same time. Oh, interesting. Okay. And then you go to Wells Fargo, then you go to this private bank in Beverly Hills. So you're some kind of whiz kid. Uh, I, I don't know if I would call myself a whiz kid. I'm probably far from a whiz kid. Just, you know, doing the natural career corporate thing. That's it. Right. Okay. And you have this epiphany. So you have this sort of like, holy shit, what the hell am I doing with my life? I'm in my mid-30s. This isn't working for me. You've got passion for other parts of life. Obviously, you're curious. You're, you know, learning stuff on your own. So it's not a, a, a sort of... Uh, general lack of passion it's a lack of passion for your job yeah exactly because i actually always thought i had to supplement uh my life with other things outside my job just to keep my creative juices flowing so like when i was in san francisco i took acting classes i was there because i really loved it i was always always been an avid martial artist so always trained heavily martial arts uh uh, i'm a writer so i've written three books written screenplays so I've always kept my other aspect of that, but I, you know, wanted to find a way to combine it. Right, right. So, uh, do you know McKee, by the way? Uh, Dennis? Is it Dennis? No, no, uh, McKee. No, McKee Colesman. He's he's um, uh, one of the guys behind the Float Center. Oh, okay. I, yeah. I do not. He's he's a really interesting guy, and the reason I ask is that his. Um, his trajectory is very much like yours. Uh, you oh, know, yeah, Stanford and then Harvard, law degree from Harvard, work for a big law firm in L.A., making tons of money, you know, power, blah, blah, blah. Um, and I think about the same age in his in his early to mid 30s, um, went on a on a trip with a friend traveling around South America. And in the midst of that, uh, sort of realized like I'm, I'm on the wrong path here. This is, this is the wrong path for me. And he quit his job. 
his high paying job in LA and he moved to Bangkok. So mm. you guys should hang. Yeah. <laughs> What's his name again? Let me write it down. McKee. So. McKee. The, the guys at the float center can. Hook oh, okay. Up. So, um, okay. So now you, you said your, your, some of your clients were your friends. Exactly. At, is that at the wall street firm or was that at Wells Fargo? Actually both. Ah, okay. So you, you hang out with high rollers. Uh, well, they were probably toward the lower end of the spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> Low high rollers, yeah. Because think of like uh, what my interests are. Martial artists tend not to be rich unless yeah. they're like in Hollywood or something. And uh, I remember actually my boss telling me when I was at Wells Fargo private banking that I should take up golf because he's like all oh, the high rollers play golf. Right. If you, you know, join a country club, you'll meet a lot of rich people. I said, I'm not giving up martial arts, something I love and I'm very passionate about, to go play golf just yeah. to find clients. Well, maybe <laughs> <You know>? polo. <laughs> or polo. Get into polo, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, so you were, were you doing asset management? Uh, yeah, I was doing asset, well, asset management when I was at Smith Barney, but at Wells Fargo, I was just, you know, doing the private banking thing. Right, right. Okay, so you have this, 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 uh, did you have like a crisis? Did you freak out and like drink too much and wreck a car or something? No, 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 it was never like that. Because I think, you know, uh, martial arts, you know, the old dojo is like my church. So it always kept me on an even keel, right? Uh, right. So I never like, you know, freaked out because anytime I was stressed out or aggression because I had great like sensei. So we actually spar, we fought every Friday. So you get your aggression out. And if there was like some kind of asshole at, at a dojo, I'd choke him out, <laughs> get my aggressions out, you know, and then I'd be calm again afterwards. So <laughs> that's good. I hope it was as good for him. Jeez. So you, <laughs> well, you're, just like, you know, even then, it was only like the jerks that would treat like they, you know, deserve to be treated. Because like sometimes, uh, you know, the example, the only one, like I can think of one person I choked out was because he came in, he was disrespectful. He was yeah. disrespectful to everyone in the dojo. And actually, my, I felt like my sensei, because he allowed me to keep the choke until this guy was basically blue in the face. <laughs> so a little longer than normal. I knew that like he wanted me to teach us guy lesson two yeah was this was jujitsu uh i trained at aiki jitsu which yeah. is kind of like mixed martial arts so it's a blend of soft and hard style so grappling and punching and kicking and right right and it was that helpful for for work other than keeping you calm well it, it is because like uh, i look at martial arts as a way of life so if you're stressed out during work, there's certain things you can go back to that you learn in martial arts that can get all that stress out. You yeah. know. So, yeah. So, so tell me about the the change then. So you you go in, you quit your job. Did you know you wanted to go to Southeast Asia, or because you'd been there in grad school, so you had a good feeling I, for it? Yeah, I'm pretty like uh, I'm pretty impulsive character. I had been to Southeast Asia before, um, as I told you, I had lived in Japan for a little bit little bit when I was doing an internship for grad school. And then I had, a, I actually had a client in Bangkok when I was at Smith Barney. So I'd fly out a couple of times a year to Bangkok. So I was already familiar and had uh, a number of friends in Bangkok. So that's why it was an easy transition to, to Southeast Asia for me. And then when I quit my job, uh, within a week, I was in Thailand, sold mm. all my stuff in LA in a week and was gone. <laughs> Well, I, I'm really pushing you on on the details of this because I know a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are 
in a job they don't like Mm -hmm. and fantasize about quitting and moving somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, you know, hearing from someone who's actually done it, I think is really uh, to get the tangible details of it is really important for them. So you don't speak Thai or you didn't speak Thai at the time, I assume. No, and uh, I have um, a little embarrassed to admit my tie is still not that good after <laughs> 10 years here. But Dude, should be better than it is, but it's like I can get around, no problem. Thai is a really difficult language. Yeah, just because of the tones. Because yeah. the only language I speak well is Spanish, and that's a non-tonal language, obviously, as well. So, yeah. uh, you know, you can learn all the vocab, you can learn all the words, but then if you don't pronounce it correctly, no one's going to understand you. Yeah, yeah. It's, I studied Thai for about two hours uh, once and it that, that was how long it took for the person to explain to me what a tonal language was and I was like okay I'm done that's uh, there's no way I'm gonna get this yeah so there's five tones in Thai so you could say the same word five different ways and it has five different meanings yeah exactly <laughs> so you get a, a little you know you have too much coffee and suddenly you know one can understand a word you're saying yeah it's strange um, so uh, how'd your how'd your family feel about this um, they obviously like were not too thrilled, especially like my parents didn't want me like outside of the U.S. because obviously it'd be more difficult uh, to to see me and to get together for family occasions. But yeah. um, I think you know eventually they they understood you know just my desire to set my own course and like because I don't know how much you know about Asian culture, but even when you're adult, you're still kind of like a child yeah. to your parents. You know, there's a lot of seniority, as far, especially in Korean culture, because I'm Korean American, yeah. where anyone older than you is always right, even when they're wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. yeah it's a difficult thing. I mean, it's not, in a way, what you're describing is like a coming out experience, right? It's it's saying, look, this is my identity. I'm sorry it makes you uncomfortable, but I have to live my life here. Yeah, and I've always actually had a pretty strong sense of adventure because when i moved to you know the internship i did in japan was a pretty funny experience because i was really into martial arts i mean i still am but i was training much harder back then like three hours a night every every day and uh i wanted to come to japan to increase my knowledge in the japanese martial arts so that was really my the incentive behind my doing the internship in in japan and the internship i applied for actually said uh candidate must speak right and read Japanese fluently. <laughs> I didn't do any of those. But I applied for it because, you know, the process, the interview process was just overseas. I didn't fly to Japan to interview. for, And it's just an internship. So I guess they don't take it as seriously as a, you know, a full-time job. But when I arrived there, they're like, you can't speak Japanese? Because <laughs> all I did was I studied a tape on the plane. <laughs> David, I was listening. <laughs> so they just gave me a translator because you know, yeah. I figure they're not going to send me back. You know? Sweet. Well done. Well done. Yeah. There, I, I remember reading a story in a magazine in the New Yorker, I think it was. I think it was a profile of um, Richard Branson. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, but it, I may be wrong about that. But it was some, you know, now famous executive. And back in the day when he was like a mid-level executive at some company, um, they the, the company wanted to send him to China. They needed to send somebody to China. Uh-huh. And he got uh, picked because he wasn't married, you know, and like, so it was easy. Didn't have a family to deal with and all that. And uh, the deal was just go there, establish relationships with these Chinese suppliers or whatever. And then in like three months, 
the bosses were going to come for a big meeting. And so he just had to sort of prepare for this meeting with them, right? Mm. They didn't expect him to learn the language or anything in three months. That's ridiculous. Um, he had a translator and a driver and all that. So, But what he did was so brilliant. What he did was he learned how to say one sentence perfectly in Which Chinese. He speak English? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, even better. So the the bosses come for the meeting, right? And they're all sitting there with the Chinese guys and the translators and everything, and everyone's all awkward and weird. And they're sitting there in the conference room, and he says in perfect Chinese, please laugh so that my bosses will think I speak Chinese. Oh, that is, that is brilliant. <laughs> and everybody, you know, could I could, that I could tell a joke in Chinese. Sorry. And, and so everybody cracks up because it is funny. And his bosses are like, what? You, you're telling jokes in Chinese now? Holy cow. <laughs> <God." laughs> that is brilliant. I thought, I thought it was like he speak English because I learned how to say that on the plane, which is Hasemaska in Japanese. Yeah. So that's the phrase I, every time I was walking around. That would ask people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nice. Um, so, so take us take us through the change then. So you you fly to Bangkok. You're like, okay, this is where I want to be. Did you have an idea what you wanted, how you were gonna survive? Or I mean, you had money in the bank, I presume. Yeah, but- I had money in the bank, and especially since the cost of living. Like part of the reason I chose Bangkok because people say, hey, why didn't you go to like Hong Kong or? Singapore immediately. That's because those cities are way more expensive than Bangkok. You know, here, even today, you can still eat a meal for like two US dollars if you want. It'd be fine, you know. So um, I came here because I wanted really not to be forced to rush into everything. Like, had I stayed in LA, I think my money would have been gone in like six months. But here, you know, I had a good like two years at least where I could just take my time and figure out what I wanted to do. So that's so, that's a very important lesson to people listening, looking for tips. Very important lesson is you got some money saved, you go somewhere cheap. I always I hear from these people, these young people, and they're like, "Okay, I saved up three thousand dollars. I'm going to go travel in Sweden." Like, are you fucking kidding <laughs> me, man? <laughs> a week, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like four beers. That's going to last you. <laughs> you know, it, and you go to someplace like like uh, Thailand. The money is. Yeah, the ticket's expensive, but once you're there, it's cheap. So exactly. stay. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I would say, too, because some of my friends would say, oh, I can never do what you do, uh, what you did. I can never just like up and leave. And I said, look, there's nothing in life that is secure. You could be working for, you know, like for me, right? Like look at all the big banks that downsized and thousands of people lost their jobs, right? Yeah. You know, so you could be working for a big firm. And in this economy, you could get laid off. So there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees. And if you're going to work as hard as they're working me at Smith Barney, which is like 12-hour days, why am I giving? Because on the payout grid, the most you can make is like 50% of the profits you bring in, so the fees you bring in. So I'll say, hey, if you go into business for your, and as you start out, I think it was like you started out something measly, like 25%. I said, why am I going to work that hard for someone else where if I have my own business – then I can make 100% and keep 100%. Automatically, your salary is going to quadruple. So the only reason someone stays with a bank like this is if you're not competent. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And and the other thing is related to what you were saying earlier. If you're running your own business, you don't need to lie to people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I never lied to people when I was at the banks, but I guess that's why I was never a big producer. Because right. I think it's almost necessary is 
bad as that sounds for people that don't understand how the banking system works, it's almost necessary to deceive and lie to become a big producer at any of these banks. Yeah, well, I mean, you look at the whole Wall Street crash, right? That's what it was. It was selling bullshit and telling people it was good. And the, it wasn't only the the bankers who were telling the lie. It was the, the regulators were accepting it and the, the rating agencies were going along with it. The whole thing was a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah. It's, but the, the the crazy thing is, no one even realizes nothing has changed since yeah. two thousand eight. So, and part two is coming. Is I'm I'm pretty convinced it's going to be worse than two thousand eight. It's coming. It's coming. Well, of course, of course, it's going to be worse because the problems <laughs> that caused the first one, as you say, haven't been addressed. And, and in fact. And in fact, they're worse because yeah. the people in positions of power never got in any trouble and they saw, okay, they'll bail us out. Now we know. Before we thought they would bail us out. Now we know they'll bail us out. So fuck it, right? You can't lose. Yeah, yeah exactly. Make yeah. profits, keep them all, make losses and socialize the losses and tax people more. Exactly. Right. So so what, do you, what did you end up doing when you got to Bangkok? So I took my time, I, you know, I, I spent some time, like my client here is actually pretty well connected in the business community. So uh, I talked to him possibly about starting businesses, but then um, I just decided, and it's really even not, not what I know, I decided to start like a precious metals consulting firm. So I deal with like gold and silver. So I had to really spend a lot of time educating myself on how this works. And there's a reason behind what, why, I, why I did that, because I'm a huge, huge advocate. One of the missions of my company is to return the world to sound money because I don't believe in fiat currency at all. So I believe in a tangible form of money. Right. Let, I, let's yeah. Let's yeah. explore that. So the fiat currency is, as I understand it, it's money that uh, the only value is the fact that the government says it has value. Exactly. Because if you look at like a, at a one dollar bill and a hundred dollar bill, the intrinsic value, which is that piece of cotton. It's the same, and it's just a fraction of a penny. But because they stamp a 100 on it, they say it's worth 100 times more than a $1 bill, which is ludicrous in my opinion. But isn't all money – I mean, you, okay, so you're talking about the intrinsic value of gold and silver because – what? Because they have um, industrial well, application? Well, it's actually because both are, are precious metals. Uh, gold is actually more rare. It's, it's very rare. In fact, like the – uh, whole amount of gold ever mined out of the earth since the beginning of time, like most of it still exists because there's very little industrial application, maybe just for like conductivity and high end electronics and, and computers and stuff like that. But that's just a fraction. Most of it still exists in the form of bullion bars, uh, coins, and jewelry. And uh, there's just not a whole lot of it that's been mined out of mined out of the earth. And then silver, although there's much more, silver is much more abundant in the earth. Because it has much more industrial application, uh, the above ground supply. People don't know this because like gold's at like twelve forty or something like that right now. Silver's at seventeen. Silver's so much more inexpensive than gold. People assume that the above ground supply of silver is greater than gold, but it's actually less because a lot of silver is consumed every year. Mm. Right. Okay. So now help me understand. The f on a fundamental level, mm -hmm. you've established that gold is very rare, but mm -hmm. so are, you know, albinos and nobody's nobody sees albinos as being particularly valuable. Right. Um, 
So I mean, well, you can't, you couldn't really trade on an albino. With <laughs> I know, bad example. <laughs> but I'm so pale, I'm almost an albino. So that, that's what came to mind. I, I don't know. Uh, you know, pick pick something else, whatever. There are a lot of things that are very rare that have no particular value, right? Sure, sure. But there's certain qualities that. Uh, you know, people through time say, this is why gold has been used as money. I've come up with other characteristics of my own through my research that I believe all money should have. So there's other qualities gold has. It's easily divisible, right? Because it's really malleable and soft. Mm. So it's easily divisible. That's why diamonds are a good form of money. It's also uniform. So, you know, 99, what they call 49 gold, 99.99% gold is the same everywhere in the world in every country. So it's uniform, easily divisible, so it's easy to use as money. But the most important aspect of money, which I think people overlook, is the fact that it holds its purchasing power over time. So basically, one gold coin, which is one ounce, in the Roman Empire would buy you the same thing today. So when people say gold goes up, right? people say, okay, the gold bull started in 2001, gold was 250, now it's like 1240, it's gone up, what, five times almost? It hasn't really gone up. It's gone up priced against dollars. It's going to be even more priced against yen. It's the fact that the paper currencies are falling. So it's gone up a little bit. I think the purchasing power has actually been, because obviously the dollar hasn't gone down that much, so preserves purchasing power and gives you a little bit more on top of that preservation. But the, the one thing it has to do is to, it has to preserve purchasing power. So in my mind, that's why Bitcoin is no good. Bitcoin is too young. It doesn't have that track record. As you see, it went from what? Uh, I think it reached somewhere like 2000 and now it's a 260 or something so it's mm. not pre- it's not preserving purchasing power. Right. Yeah, Bitcoin I don't I don't even get close to understanding Bitcoin. I, I and that, no idea. that's not tangible either. It's just digital. Yeah. Yeah. You know? yeah. I mean, as far as I can tell, Bitcoin is no different from dollars or yen or, you know, whatever, uh, in the sense that it's completely abstract. You know, you can print coins or paper or whatever, but it's still an abstraction. Yeah, the only good thing is about Bitcoin is that they did put a limitation on how many can be created. Hmm. So that should give it more value than fiat currency because it's basically essentially the same as fiat currencies, except that uh, bankers are not creating it. So they say it's better because you don't have criminal bankers creating it, overseeing it. And then they say it's better because, uh, which I agree with in this point, it's there's a limited amount that can be created. And once that a limited amount has been reached, no more can be created. Whereas a banker today can press a button and send $10 trillion to banks if they want. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so let me, let me see if I understand what you were saying earlier. You're saying that gold preserves its purchasing power and that the fluctuation in the price of gold really is an effect of the fluctuation of, of different currencies priced against gold. Yeah, exactly. Because if you look at the times, you know, you go back in monetary history, the very clever thing that bankers have done because of bankers that uh, basically – formed our education system were like the Rockefellers, right? Because <clears throat> the richest people always had the most oversight over education. And then that system was exported to most of the world. So they stripped away knowledge that was common, that is coming back now, but it was common like 100 years ago. Because no one trusted bankers like 100 years ago. Yeah. You go back into the 1930s and even U.S. congressmen were railing on these banks as evil institutions that basically were, were stealing from people. You would never get a U.S. congressman to say that today. So, um, Except Elizabeth know, I, Warren. Yeah, and Ron Paul. Yeah, exactly, right. 
Because <laughs> I was surprised, actually, that Ron Paul was still alive, but you know, because yeah. he's so many things that were exposing the truth that I know bankers did not want out there. Well, um, if he ever became a serious pre- uh, presidential candidate, something might have oh, yeah, gone wrong. He assassinated, I think, if he became president. Yeah. But, um, you know, so uh, like gold and silver, when it used to be money, you know, when gold was backing the dollar for like 100 years, there's almost zero inflation between 1800 and 1900. The cost of goods was almost the same. So the whole time. So you'd have that's another, you know, uh, myth that is just total garbage that inflation is part of the natural economic cycle not true when gold was money for like 300 years in in england there was almost no inflation when gold was serving as money but when paper money took over then you had inflation like quadrupling every couple decades or every decade you know Hmm. so that's when inflation became part of it and then that's when the bankers started selling the lies and business curricula all over the world that inflation is part of the natural cycle boom bust cycle which again is a lie that's not natural it's, but, you know, but there were booms and busts uh before the the shift from uh gold reserve to fiat currency right sure but a lot of okay there i think there's a lot of myths because i studied this like really uh closely sure there are booms and busts um but a lot of those booms and busts were created by the banker not sticking to the gold standard for example, people say, okay, uh, when Nixon closed uh, the gold, the Bretton Woods um, in 1971, that wasn't even really a true gold standard. Because when I talk about true gold standard, I'm saying if you create um, you know, a billion dollars, then you need to have a billion dollars worth of gold backing it. So it was like a fractional gold system, Bretton Woods, where it's only a fraction of gold back in the U.S. dollar. Mm. But basically what happened was France was like the China of today. France had the biggest surplus in U.S. dollars. And they knew that the U.S. wasn't keeping that ratio that they promised. I think it was one twentieth an ounce of gold was equal to the dollar or something back then. I'm not positive because off the top of my head, but that's what I think it was. So anyways, there's a set ratio. But the Fed Reserve started printing more money, so they started lessening that ratio. But they told the whole world it was the same. But people know because the purchasing power of the, uh, purchasing power of the, of the dollar goes down. So they know that the bankers are being... Uh, are not not being honest about. So France came and said, okay, if you're going to keep it at ratio, we're going to get more gold than our dollars are actually worth. So they brought all their dollars back and said, give us gold. And then the bankers didn't like that. So they say, hey, we're getting, we're giving away something real of real value and we're getting our own crappy values that we're devaluing back. So they just shut it down. You mm-hmm. know, and this has happened all throughout history. And that's why you get volatility and, and prices um Big price fluctuations because when the bankers are cheating at people, when they're lying about keeping a gold standard, that happened after World War One too. When uh, you know the uh, basically the currency that was the global currency was the British pound, and again they had a certain ratio, but they had to print twice as many pounds during the war to fund the war. Right. But they said, "Hey, the ratio is the same," and everyone called bullshit on it. It's, it's bullshit. We know you printed twice as many pounds. There's twenty twice as many pounds in circulation. So they brought all the pounds back and the bankers started losing gold and they panicked. And they actually, that all set off the Great Depression because then the bankers came to the, to the Federal Reserve and said, hey, look, you got to start cutting uh, interest rates uh, of the dollar so that people you know, don't keep selling the pound and we keep losing our gold. You got to make the dollar less competitive. So they cut interest rates way low and people borrowed the dollar, put it on the stock market, caused a... Um, 
stock market boom, which I call it a boom, which was really basically would never have happened in a free market because gold regulates a free market. Like a free market, it's, it's, it's uh, insane to me that people will say free markets exist today because in a free market, the market's setting the interest rates. If you have a central bank setting the interest rates, that's not a free market. Right. So when the central banks cut interest rates, that wasn't a free market. They created massive price distortions in the stock market and caused the great stock market crash. Right. So it's all interrelated. So, you know, this international finance has been around for a long time. When one, do- one domino falls, the rest will fall. So what, what are you doing now? You're advising clients privately, as I understand it. Well, the, yeah, the, the services I have, too, I have two uh, distinct services. One is basically just consultation for people that want to buy precious metals as a way of preserving their wealth or purchasing power moving forward, because I still believe in that strongly. It didn't actually start out that way, because I started my company in 2007. So back then, we were investing somewhat in the Chinese stock market, some tech stocks. But now, it's just everything is so distorted and out of whack that I've gone basically to uh, precious metals, like fully into precious metals only. Hmm. And so um, so I have those consultation services. So I, you know, I tell people why, when, where, how, you know, what to how to buy gold and silver and why they should and what sets the prices because a lot of people don't understand what sets the prices of gold and silver. You don't just uh, buy it from those guys on late night TV. I, <laughs> no, that's, that's no, what no. I've been doing. So, yeah, so in that in that sense, I just sell research and information. Right. So I don't really. Uh, I do have private consultations, uh, but the bigger overarching service is just uh, selling research and information in that regard. And the second is I have an education. Um, program, which I also sell as well, which tells people like, you know, um, basically uh, what, how, how to really assess what's going on. Because the mainstream financial news, you learn nothing. It's basically almost pure propaganda now. So I tell people how to really look at stats, really to understand what's going on and where the economy is heading and then what you should be investing in. So basically the education system is everything I did not learn in business school, which is because <laughs> almost everything I learned in business school is a waste of my money and waste of time and propaganda. Mm, that's interesting. So, so you see gold as a, as a port in this storm that you see coming, right? Yeah, because if you look at it, um, I think everyone should own some percent of gold. Some other savings should be in gold. And the reason being is that people never see when the banking system fails. You know, do you think people in Russia knew the ruble was going to collapse? Mm. But if they had gold, they, they'll be fine. In Venezuela, where, you know, the government says the, you know, the forex uh, rate is like as low as six Bolivar to the dollar, but you can go in the black market and get 170 Bolivar to the dollar. Again, people that have gold are standing strong through that. But if you didn't have gold and just have Bolivars, you're kind of screwed. You know, same thing in Cyprus when they closed all the banks down and then they stole nearly half wow. of the yeah, I remember that a couple of days ago. Suddenly, like, oh, your savings account is half what it was on Friday. Yeah, I still don't understand how, like, bankers weren't, like, no violent retribution was enacted on bankers for that. <laughs> I don't understand who these people are in Cyprus that just stood by and allowed 47, it was 47.5% was the final decision. They took 47.5% of all accounts over 100,000 euros. Hmm. That, that to me is insane. Yeah. Well, I can tell you, I've been to Cyprus and there are a lot of guys with guns standing around there. So it, it's a, not an easy place to, you know, rebel. 
Oh, okay. Because okay. but you know when they did that, they did allow the ex. KGB Russian guys to take their money out. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. I remember. First, because they knew the Russian guys would come after them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so they said, you guys get all your money out of the system, and then we're just going to steal half the deposits from the regular Joes and yeah. Jades out there. It's true. You do not want to fuck with Russians. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of all the nasty people in the world that I can imagine like not wanting to deal with, Russians are always at the top of the list. Yeah, or any of the former Soviet republics, any of the Stans. Yeah. <laughs> you don't mess with any of them either. Yeah, yeah, they just do not give a shit, those people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, so what do you, I mean, I don't want you to give away anything for free that you're charging for in your, in your consulting company, but like, is there, uh, are there ways for normal people to buy gold without getting, you know, rammed in these amazing, incredible, you know, markups? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say that the first thing you want to do is definitely buy gold outside of the banking system because mm. you'll be screwed for sure if you buy gold within the banking system. And there are historical precedents for why that's true, for why I say that. One is uh, there was a case of in Morgan Stanley where someone had actually bought, thought he had bought physical silver. So he wasn't buying paper silver like silver futures contracts. He actually had a contract with Morgan Stanley where he said, I'm buying, uh, I think it was $1.7 million worth of silver from Morgan Stanley. So Morgan Stanley was actually charging this client vaulting fees. Because they said, we went out and bought your physical silver, we're going to charge you vaulting fees, right? Yeah. But apparently they never did it. Because when this guy said, okay, I want to take delivery of that silver. I want to have it in my home. I have uh, you know, a very secure safe. And then they kept, uh, they kept basically stalling. Saying, oh, we don't, we're going to have to wait a week. Then it became like a month and it became several months. He's like, this is ridiculous because even if you say it is where it is, somewhere in the Midwest in some ball, you know, put it on a truck. It should be in my house in several days. So he basically uh, found out everyone else that bought physical silver through Morgan Stanley filed a class action lawsuit against them. And of course, as the banks always do, the settlements always occur. They admitted no wrongdoing, but. Uh, they had to reimburse this guy and they didn't give him physical silver just for the amount of his contract, I think, and the difference. Because I think what had happened is the price of silver had gone up. Right. So they never bought it. They just bought like paper silver. So if they had to go out to the open market, they were going to take a huge loss on delivering that silver. And they were charging him vaulting fees. You know, so that's one instance. That is so shameless. And, that's like that's like I'm charging you to feed your horse and I never bought your horse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, but that's the crazy thing about the whole gold and silver market, how the price is set. People don't understand how it's set. They think, because they teach you in business school, that prices are set by supply and demand. Gold and silver prices have nothing to do with supply and demand of the actual commodity. It's set by supply and demand of the futures contracts. But the paper contracts, they trade over 100 times as much gold and paper ounces of gold. So meaning that gold doesn't even exist than the physical gold that exists every year. And in silver, it's like 170 times. So they create this all this artificial supply, and that's how they slam the price. But the thing is, even when they slam the price, like when silver went to a low, uh, uh, I think even at the end of last year, it went to like something like $14.10 an ounce on the spot price, which is the, you know, reflects the paper price. And then that same day, it rebounded to 17 But if you try to buy physical silver, $14.10 an ounce, you weren't getting it at that price. Because even today, like silver coins I bought just two years ago, 2012, 
they're still selling for premiums of 25% over the spot price. So why is that? That tells you the spot paper price the bankers are setting is fraudulent. Right. This should be the same. Why is my one ounce of silver I bought, physical silver, two years ago, and just in the form of a coin, 25% higher than the spot price today? Makes no sense. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, they can. There's like independent bullion dealers out there to answer your question. Like um, gold money is one. They sell physical silver, physical gold in Hong Kong, Singapore. They have their own vaults or outside of the banking system. ABN Ambro, largest Dutch bank in the world, just screwed their clients uh, last year. Beginning of last year, again, uh, clients had bought, had contracts with ABN Ambro for physical gold. And they sent them a notice, I think in March or April, saying you cannot settle these contracts with delivery of your own gold. You can only settle it in euros. So, so you never want to deal with a bank in hmm. buying any physical gold. So buy it outside the system. Preferably take, take delivery. Yeah. If you, you know, because that way you know you definitely have it. But I think the independent dealers are out there. Um, you know, they have independent audits. You know, you can go to their websites and every gold bar is 100% back. They have insurance on it. They have serial numbers and weights for every individual bar because there's variations, you know, a little variation, even though they're all like good for delivery. Gold bars are usually 400 ounce bars, but they're not all going to be perfectly 400 ounces. So you can check that. Um, so I'd say either, you know, one of those two means, but always I would say, you know, try to have some gold and silver, at least a little bit at home in case, you know, and the shit hits the fan scenario. Like, so, yeah. So the shit, shit hits the fan. You're walking around with a pocket full of cougarons, right? Yeah. Anywhere in the world you go, gold is accepted as money, though. That's a good thing, right? Anywhere in the world you can go. You can convert. You know, like people make those stupid arguments like you can't eat gold. Well, can you eat dollar bills? <laughs> but you can buy stuff with gold. That's what's important, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gold is this barbarous relic. I'm sure you've heard those arguments, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's not it's not like worth anything. It doesn't have any utility. Of course it has utility because jewelry obviously is one and money is the most important. Yeah, yeah. So, but I mean the 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 value of gold has gone down though, right? Cuz I can remember it was 1200, I don't know, 10 15 years ago and then it dropped and then it's gone no, back up. 10 years ago it's because the gold bull started at um at uh 250. So right. 2000 was $250. It's dropped recently because it went as high as like 1900, I think 2011. Mm. Um, but the reason it drops is because it's fraud. Because I, I told you again, they, the, the way they drop it is uh, they use something called high frequency trading algorithms. Because everything, all trades and futures markets and stock markets, I think something like as recently several years ago, there's a study some Yale professor did and found like 80% of all stock trades are controlled by computer algorithms. So it's not even people making trades anymore. It's all uh, computers. And the problem with that is that these computers can make trades faster than anyone can see, right? So they can make literally thousands of trades in a second, or they can make it a trade in a millisecond, right? So that's how some of these firms basically rip people off. Like there was a, high, there was a firm, ironically, named Virtue, right? <laughs> <laughs> and in five years, there's a study, in five years, Chris, they had one day of losses in trading for their own proprietary accounts. One day out of something like 1,200 and some trading days. Yeah. So that is mathematically impossible without fraud. Like That's like saying I can go to Macau 
here at the casinos and play 1,240 whatever hands of blackjack and have one hand that I lost. That's like the same probability of this firm. The way they don't have any losses is is because this is what they do. You know, because they violate uh, securities laws all the time. Because if a client places a trade, right, say, hey, buy me, uh, I don't know what, like, Bank of, or I don't know what Apple shares or Bank of America are right now. But say the stock is, like, Bank of America stock, I have no idea what's out. It's just, hypothetically, $20 a share, right? Client says, buy me $20.10 or better. And the firm sees, hey, I can buy it at $20.09 or $0.08. So they'll they'll buy it and then flip it and sell it to the client and make a penny off of every share. But they do that like millions of times through the course of a day or at least hundreds of thousands of times. Yeah. So they they can make dollars by – it's called front running. But basically they're violating securities laws and they're cheating, but it's done so quickly no one can see. And they do that in gold and silver markets too because there is one instance and this is how – blatant the manipulation is so i can't understand the morons out there because there are plenty of morons that are like on the banker side say oh there's no manipulation of gold and silver prices it's just the market it's the supply and demand but as i already told you has nothing to do with physical supply and physical demand because physical demand for gold has actually gone up over the last several years and supply is going down the same with silver so what we learned in business school law supply and demand prices should be going up but they've been going down because it's controlled in the paper markets in which they control. They create hundreds of times more fake paper ounces backed by nothing but air to control the price. So I have actually, this is a fact, Chris, I've actually seen times when they, the bankers, this is what they do because it's controlled in the paper markets. They one time in, in uh, April of, I can't remember what year it was, but it was like a couple of years ago. Uh, and this was so blatant because there are 15 of the top bankers met with in the White House with Obama. So you're talking about the CEO of Goldman Sachs, Deutsche Bank, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, UBS, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, like all the top banks. Right. The 15 bankers met with with uh, Obama. And the next day, gold price was slammed 275 days down in three days. And I looked at the futures markets and what was going on. This is how they affected it. It had nothing to do. Like people weren't selling. You know, you would think people have to be selling physical gold, right? And yeah. the demand had to be decreasing for that to go, go for that to happen. And they actually were able to slam gold down from sixteen hundred dollars an ounce to twelve hundred dollars an ounce in the next couple of weeks. And it's funny because this happened. The slam started within twenty four hours of that meeting. So they, they're so arrogant and blatant. They don't even care. You know, people are going to connect the dots and see what's going on. But the way they did that is they sold more than 12.8 million ounces of gold or 400 tons. The bulk of it in just 30 minutes hmm. to start that, that, that decline. So what they're doing basically is they're selling paper gold to force the price down. And people say, oh, why is that manipulation? Well, it's manipulation because they're not, they're not selling a, physical, a single physical ounce of gold. It's all paper. Well, essentially what you're describing is taking, you know, the, the last of the, the sort of solid, honest currencies and turning that into a fiat currency as well. Yeah, it's reverse alchemy. It's yeah. like turning gold into paper. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, by so, the way, if anyone uh, listening to this wants to read more about what you were talking about with those algorithms and the, the nanosecond trades, Michael Lewis's last book, Flash Boys, is about that. 
that oh, very I, thing. I haven't read it, but you know, I've, I've heard about that. Yeah. But you know, I've done my own research and I've seen them do this time and time and time again. So, you know, for anyone that really, and it's pretty basic, right? If you're going to sell, cause there's a other time in July, just of last year, right? They sold, okay. I'm looking at, at certain timeframes, 10 minutes. They sold 1.4 million ounces of gold, paper gold again, not physical. And then in five minutes, they saw 7.8 million ounces of paper gold. And then in a five-minute period, they saw 1.6 million ounces of gold. So who in the right mind, the only way you would sell that, think if you're selling like 8 million ounces of gold, in a physical gold in a, in a negotiation. You're not going to dump that all on the market at once because that ensures you get the worst possible price, right? So the only reason you would be selling even the paper gold in that manner is to drive the price down. Because if you're holding it, you're selling it to get the best possible price, you're going to sell it very slowly in very small increments. Right. But if you want to flood the market with supply, drive the price down by the $50, $60 an ounce in minutes, that's the way you do it. And so why, that guarantees you the worst possible price. And why? What, what's their interest in, in plummeting the price of gold? Because gold is basically like a weather vane for inflation. So the higher gold goes down, people realize, oh, the dollar kind of sucks. Oh, because, I got you. Okay. Yeah, because, because I saw the lie that the dollar was the strongest currency in the world last year, right? But if you look at it, because it's only because the dollar is measured against weaklings. Because the dollar is measured against the euro and the yen, which both sucked last year. So that's like saying I'm 90 pounds and I'm this massively like physical specimen to be feared. Because everyone next to me is a 70-pound weakling. Right. <laughs> you know? But if you look at gold, okay, gold was only down like a, a percent last year, or 1.5% against the dollar. But I guess every other fiat currency was up. Right. In the, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Yeah, exactly. So that's the reason the West, because, you know, they want to keep the U.S. dollar hegemony over the world. Because that's the way they control all capital markets. That's the way they control all the stock markets prices. That's the way they control the real estate market prices. That's the way they control the oil prices is by keeping the dollar king. And as it happens, um, uh, Saddam Hussein was talking about getting selling uh, oil off the uh, dollar right before yeah, he was euros. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right before the invasion. And same thing with Muammar Gaddafi. Muammar Gaddafi said, hey, let's start. uh, He said, I want to start like a United Nations of Africa and get everyone on gold. And then, you know, Gaddafi had been the ruler forever. Yeah. But when he said that, oh, he's a tyrant. Got to get rid of him. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That that whole thing about the dollar being the reserve currency is true. That that is such a huge advantage. That's that's the difference between going to the casino and being the casino. Yeah, exactly. And the, the whole thing about, you know, there being an equal level playing field is garbage. It's absolute garbage because every day the dollar is losing purchasing power, right? Because there's inflation, right? So the people that have access to money when it's first created by these central bankers are the top 0.1%. So this whole trickle down, you think about it, right? So if the rate of inflation is like 9% a year. And it takes several years for it to get to the middle class and several more years to get to the poorest people. Hmm. The richest people get it when it's worth the most. The purchasing value is the highest, right? And so if they are people, even if you're, you know, like a decent person and you have a company, you're employing more people, you're creating jobs, it's going to take some time for that money 
when it's freshly, cre- freshly created and the richest people get it first to trickle down. So say the dollars devalue, you know, 30% by that time. So by the time I get it, you know, from the time the richest people got it, I already got to make, you know, 60% profit because it's already down 30% just to get back even to where the richest people got it. By the time the poor pe- poorest people get it, maybe it's down 80%. So I got to make 160% just to get back to the starting line where the richest people started. That's what people don't get. There is no level playing field. So that's why now, like, I, re- I don't know if this is true because, you know, people can use stats to make up anything. But I read recently, they say the 0.1%, so not even the 1%, but 0.1% of wealthiest Americans now own the same amount of wealth as the bottom 90%. Of America, which is insane. Yeah, yeah. Well, even if the stat, I mean, who, who knows if the stat's exactly correct? But what we know is that those ratios haven't been that skewed since the 1920s. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's insane. You're right. Um, listen, listen, man. This is really fascinating. Uh, you know, it's something I don't know anything about, but you've got me uh, charged up to take my entire savings of three thousand twenty-four dollars and buy gold with it. Well, here's the thing that I think is going to be a, a game changer, right? Because you know, my my clients say, "Hey, you said be patient through the last three years because gold and silver have been going down, um, and that it will come back." I said, "They said, how do you know it's going to come back?" How do you know that this price, you know, because I explained the manipulation game to you, right, in a nutshell. Yeah. They say, how, why can't they do this forever and keep the golden price? I said, first of all, uh, I'm sure the bankers will want gold and silver where it started, this bull. So gold back at 250 in 2001, silver at $4 an ounce. But it's not. Silver's a 17, four times higher. Gold's at almost five times higher, 1250. So had they been able to keep it down, that's exactly where gold and silver would be at. And then I said, secondly, the BRICS nations, which is nearly half the world's populations, are totally moving away from the U.S. dollar. That is unprecedented. So we're going to uncharted territory because the dollar had been king in all the BRICS nations before. Everyone had used uh, the dollar to pay for oil. Now the BRICS nations, like Russia and China, cut a deal and they say, hey, we're going to trade oil in Chinese yuan, Russian rubles, and gold. We're going to cut the dollar out completely. Now, they realize they have to take additional steps because as you see, the Obama administration has put a lot of sanctions on these Russian oligarchs. So they block them from using the SWIFT system because there's only the West, the international wiring system, there's only one, SWIFT. I forget what that stands for, Society for Worldwide International Financial Transactions, maybe? Mm. SWIFT, S-W-I-F-T. Yeah. Yeah. And so if, if you get blocked from that, you're screwed. You can't do, you know, you're a Russian oligarch that has $50 billion. You can't do any more international trade. Can't because use PayPal to buy oil. Oh, you, yeah, you could pay it in other assets, like hard assets, right? But the, the BRICS nations have been fed up with these Western bankers um, putting these sanctions on them. So they're developing their own wiring system. So if they are able to successfully move completely away from the U.S. dollar, that's half. Yeah, I know it's not half the world's GDP, but they're up and coming. And that, that's half the world's population. That is going to put a huge dent in the ability of these bankers to continue manipulating silver and gold. And secondly, since they drive the price down by just selling gold that doesn't even exist, they need a small amount of backing, right, of physical gold and physical silver still to back these um, contracts. 
Now, the regulations say that the people that hold these contracts, say you buy paper uh, futures contracts, the, the crazy thing is, okay, first of all, it's fraudulent because they don't even have gold to back this trading, right? But then they even compounded the fraud because they leveraged up these futures contracts. So what I mean is, okay, you take one futures gold contract, that represents 100 ounces, right? Today's price is around 1240 so 100 ounces at $1,240 an ounce would be $124,000, right? Mm-hmm. So you say, okay, I got to ante up $124,000 to buy one futures contract. Not true. All you need is $4,400. It's called the initial margin. That's You need $4,400 to control $124,000 worth of gold because right. that gold doesn't exist. So that's 28 to 1 leverage. And, what, and what's the leverage on a normal futures contract, like for stocks? Uh, I don't know what it is in the S and P five hundred, um, but yeah. I don't. believe It's as high because in silver, it's not as high either. Silver is about twelve to one leverage. Uh, right. And and the thing is, this is how they can also trigger off sales. Okay, because there's something called the maintenance margin. So your futures contract, the initial uh, d- deposit you got anti up is worth four thousand four hundred. Now the price of gold goes down, then your the initial deposit the valuation of that goes down so if it goes down below four thousand then you got to ante up more money into your account or just close the contract out but if you sell it then the selling pressure is going to drive the price down so i don't know if you remember in 2011 once the silver price went to fifty dollars and the gold i think was at the high like almost two thousand that's when the bankers got seriously worried because they say oh if this keeps going upward then everyone's going to dump dollars and our whole global banking Ponzi scheme may be over. Mm. So they took extreme measures. They actually were able to artificially create a downward momentum spiral in gold and silver prices because they changed, they increased the silver margins five times in nine days by 84%. So basically what that means is, okay, as the price of silver is going down, then they're increasing the margin. So say I have I'm a rich guy that has bought $2 million worth of silver contracts or, or you know, my deposit is, say, even half a million dollars. So as they keep raising margins, right, the first time they raise it, they raise it five times in nine days. Okay, maybe I got to ante up $80,000 because they increase the margins to keep my position in play. And I'm going to keep it in play. So I ante up $80,000. They raise it again. I got to come up with another 20000 Like right off the bat, you got to come up with it within 24 hours or you're out. They will automatically sell your contract if you don't, you know. And so, so they ante it up again. They keep anteing it up and it creates a domino effect. It's all artificial. It's, so, it's just to flood the market. Yeah, but, but, you know, by raising the margins, they are forcing people to come up with more money that they know they can't come up with to right. keep their positions. Right. So they're actually forcing them to sell right. too, which creates more downward pressure on the price. And right. it has zero to do with the physical demand, physical supply of silver. It's crazy. Yeah. Nothing. It has nothing. So that's why I know like all this fraud is going to end because half the world is moving away from it. And the funny thing is in Shanghai, right? The Shanghai, I think Shanghai, China wants to become the center for futures trading. In Shanghai, it's very different than London and New York because London and New York is where all this fraud goes on and that's how they control the price of gold and silver. They, they keep it down. In Shanghai, people actually settle in physical. So they buy these future contracts and then they take delivery of the physical. So in Shanghai, just the past three years, 33.5 million ounces of silver have been depleted from the warehouses. Because people are buying futures contracts and then saying, hey, instead of selling it in paper or Chinese yuan, I want my physical silver. Mm-hmm. So 
the warehouses have gone down from 1,200 tons to 94.8 tons in the last three and a half years. To, to make this analogy relevant, if you took the same amount of gold, too, that's been depleted in Shanghai, and you apply the daily rate of gold leaving Shanghai warehouses to the New York COMEX, which is the warehouses in New York that have gold that back the, the paper contract trading, the COMEX warehouses would be depleted in less than three days of all their gold, and the gig would be up. If they operate the same way as Shanghai, <laughs> and the same amount of gold left the COMEX warehouses that left uh, the Shanghai warehouses daily ba- on a daily basis last year. All the physical gold in the New York warehouses would be gone in less than three days. They have zero gold backing the fraudulent paper trading, and they'd have to shut down operations. So, do you are you want to? I've heard people say that Fort Knox doesn't actually contain any gold. They think it's all a fraud. I yeah. think it's a fraud too, because the thing is the federal what what the uh, Fed Reserve says they hold on behalf of U.S. citizens, right? The gold reserves for the nation that hasn't been officially audited audited since like Dwight D. Eisenhower's right? like in nineteen fifty something. Yeah. Out, you know, by independent auditors. I'm not talking about Federal Reserve auditors. You can tell you whatever they want, right? And there's reasons why I would actually be shocked if they have 50% of what they say they have. So I think, in this sense, the Federal Reserve is lying by overstating what they have. And then, obviously, Chinese and Russian are lying by underestimating what they have, by reporting officially far less than what they actually hold in terms of physical. So the reason that a lot of this story has gained a lot of weight and credibility is because of Germany's insistence, right? Germany said, hey, we want our, all our gold repatriated because a lot of countries still hold their gold uh, with the Fed Reserve, right? So that, there was no reason for any country to do that anymore. That was done when you know, we were operating on a gold standard. They wanted gold centralized, but you know, they could have taken their gold back 100 years ago. So I don't know why these countries haven't, but some of them are getting wise. Germany said, hey, we, I think they have like 1,500 tons um, still with the New York Fed Reserve or still in quotation marks because yeah. it's probably gone. Right? So, what, so you're, what you're describing is a run on the bank. Yeah, but what, this is what's crazy, right? So the Fed Reserve said, no, we're not going to give it back to you, Germany, but we'll give it back to you in seven years. So they said, we'll give you starting 300 tons in 2000. In, uh, I think it was. I don't think the numbers are out for 2014. I think this was in 2013. So we're going to give you back 300 tons in 2013. You know how much they got back? They got back five. And what is five out of 1,500? That means the gold is gone. They don't have it. And the five tons they got back weren't even their gold bars because you know all central banks will stamp it with their central banking insignia. They got back some melted down, refabricated gold bars that weren't theirs. Which makes no sense because if they have Germany's gold bars, first of all, they could return all 1,500 tons in a week to them. And they said, we'll give you 300 this year. And then, you know, some graduated plan over seven years, we return all of it. And then the year they said they're going to return 300, they only returned five. Uh, how do you know that? Is that publicly reported? Yeah, it's publicly reported. You can Google it and it's all, it's all there. So that's why I think everything... A lot of these things are going on, like Libya. When we went, when NATO went in and killed Gaddafi, Libya actually had a lot of gold. All that gold is gone. I think it's gone to the West. I think when we went into Iraq, we stole their gold. We stole uh, all uh, Saddam Hussein's gold. In Ukraine, 
you know, when NATO went in Ukraine and we replaced it with U.S. puppets, right? I know that I don't know like what you're getting in the West because the news I get in Asia is much different than the West. But I heard it's very anti-Russian sentiment. Um, but Ukrainian, this Ukrainian central bankers just came out. Uh, I think it was last month. They said 98 percent of our gold is gone. So the U.S. stole their gold too. <laughs> yeah. So some of that gold, I think, we're stealing from other countries. Maybe the gold we need to return, like other other countries, like that we don't want to piss off, like Germany. So it's a Ponzi scheme. The whole thing is is just you know pretending there's value at the heart of this thing, and there isn't. Yeah, well, even the whole banking system is a Ponzi scheme because even now, you know, I remember this is a true story, Chris. Like my father several years ago was renovating his home because he wanted to put it on the market. He went to the bank. He needed like I think it was eight thousand dollars to uh, upgrade the central air system in the home. You know what the bank told him? I can't remember what it wasn't like Citigroup or something, but it was like one of the it was up there as far as one of the fifteen largest banks in the U.S. The bank said, oh, Mr. Kim, we're sorry. You should have told us you were coming in. We don't have that money to give you. But if you come back like in a week, we can have that money for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's $8,000. Yeah. Uh, So most people don't realize that, you know, a bank run would happen even on Citibank. If just like 10% of the people that have deposits with Citibank went in and asked for the money back, it'd all be gone. They don't have it in cash form. All, you know, when you check your balance ATM machine, that's all digital. That's the only form it exists in, is digital. And that 10% reserve ratio requirement is a joke yeah. because the Fed Reserve says 10%, but the Fed Reserve itself, again, this is all documentable and provable. If you go to their website, they will say something like less than, I think it's like less than, than 10% of all commercial banks now have 0% reserve ratio requirement. Because they, they found a way to get rid, to get around that 10% reserve ratio requirement by basically putting you into something called money market accounts. So sweep accounts are not subject to that uh, 10% reserve ratio requirement. So basically they can take almost 100% of your money that comes in deposits and lend it all out. Yeah. So it's crazy. The you're, whole banking system's a Ponzi scheme. You're fucking killing me, man. I, I don't know. <laughs> You're making me happy. I don't have any money, so that way I don't need to worry about it. <laughs> or if you do, you know, because I, I I put my money where my mouth or yeah, I put my money where my mouth is. I almost convert everything I get from my small little company's operations into physical gold and physical silver every month. I don't want it in any paper money. I don't even want it in Chinese yuan, even though I think you know that'd be more stable than a dollar moving forward. I don't trust paper money because if you look at the history of paper money, right? All pay, you know, the funny thing is, because because knowing monetary history is very important to me for what I do in my business. If you look at it, you can just see the same things. We never learned anything from history, Chris. The same things happen over and over and over again. Even when the first American colonialists came from, you know, Great Britain to America, you know, you see the first. They first they're using uh, British, you know, shillings, right? British pence and British shillings were convertible to silver. It was actually silver that was more important than gold at that time at a fixed ratio. And then gold was fixed to silver at a fixed ratio. But, you know, at that time, in the 1600s also, they allowed for competition. So there's other gold and silver coins from Brazil, Portugal, and Spain. But since the Spanish dollar had the most silver content in it, that actually was the most traded silver coin in America. It wasn't even the British shilling. It was the Spanish dollar. But then what happened was 
you know, soldiers would do raids, right? They would go and raid like Quebec and raid. And from the loot they would gain in these raids, they would uh, basically sell it and promise these soldiers like gold and silver in, in return. But when they started looting and would not get anything, then they said, oh, we will form, since we have no gold and silver to give you, we're going to form paper money. And the paper money is a promise to you that you can exchange it for gold and silver in the future. And the first paper money came into existence in 1690 because that's what happened. They had to, it was a promise to pay these soldiers, right? But what happened was because in Massachusetts, the government kept falling heavier and heavier into debt and they continued to issue paper notes. They promised could be redeemed in gold and silver coins, but People didn't want this paper money because they knew the government was heavier debt in that particular state. They, then, even though they said, "Oh, you must accept uh, a certain exchange rate for this paper money," um, that because that paper money started losing value and start and depreciated by forty percent against gold and silver coins. So then, the Massachusetts government stepped in and said, "Hey, you got to redeem this paper. If this paper note is worth ten silver coins, you got to do it." You can't give six silver coins because that's what the that's what's going on in the free market. But that made people even want to hoard gold and silver coins more and not want paper money. Uh. So, you know, it's the same thing that's like happening today. And so they just kept printing more paper money. Right. So they actually in eight years, they printed eight times more more paper money. And then in those eight years, the price of silver went up 10 times. So it used to be that. Uh, you would get, uh, I think the price of silver was like six shillings a troy ounce. Then it went up to 60 shillings a troy ounce because they created so much paper money. So that actually, because they're creating so many dollars today, and then the Bank of Japan is creating so many yen, and the European Central Bank is creating like trillions and trillions of euros out of thin air, that actually would have happened. You know, gold would have been like $8,000 an ounce already today, and silver would be like $300 an ounce. But if they hadn't created this fraudulent paper market, I just told you to suppress the price of gold and silver. If it was like back then. So wow. you can learn a lot from history. Yeah. Yeah. Well, history is probably the only place you can learn a lot about. I mean, I'm writing this book now about uh, it's sort of about prehistory and how we can use prehistory to learn about the present and the future. And it's, you know, that's the central enigma. People think, well, what are you going to learn from the past? Blah, blah, blah. The past is the only place you're going to learn about the future, right? It's the only way, the only place that's got any insight to offer. I think uh, George Orwell said, he who controls the past controls the future, you know? Exactly. So that's why the papers all change the history and all censor all this stuff I'm telling you from all the business books. Because they don't want people to know this stuff. Then they'll understand that the whole banking system is so criminal. I actually call bankers like mafia guys in expensive suits. (laughs) Because <laughs> that's all it is. It's a criminal racket. They should be prosecuted under RICO because well, their criminality is just as high. Yeah, but they get away with it because you know. Sure. I mean, who, who was the, the the bank in Florida that was uh, explicitly, openly, knowingly laundering billions of dollars in drug money for the cartels in the Colombia? Oh, sure. The Bank for International commerce and trading commerce or something like that yeah the bmgi or what i don't remember what the the, you know the acronym but one of the major banks in the world they were convicted and i think they you know this is the other thing that gets me they the you know u.s justice department um gave them a fine of 200 million dollars or something like that but it doesn't matter 
at that yeah, level. Yeah, they're making way more profits than that anyways. Well, and also, it's not real money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, okay, it's it's a fucking scam. Like, you you give me a fine of two hundred million dollars, and then print out two hundred million dollars and give it to me, and then I give it to you, and then it's like it doesn't. It's it's all imagination. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. You sent it to do crime because the fines don't equal the profits you make from the crime. Of course, you're going to continue to do those crimes. Like, it's just like I don't buy. Uh, I don't know if you heard the story of how HSBC was laundering money for the most violent uh, drug cartel in Mexico, the Sinaloa drug cartel. Yeah. Did you hear that story? Yeah. Okay, so that's a crazy story, right? Because, okay, so the um, U.S. Justice Department, whatever, they find them like $1.9 billion. But that, you know, people say, oh, that's almost $2 billion. That's like a lot of money. It's not a lot of money because they said HSBC was accused. Okay, first of all, they said what they caught was $881 million that they laundered, right? But that was only during a certain period of year. If you read the whole story, they said there's $670 billion in wire transfers, an additional $9.4 billion in purchases of U.S. currency that HSBC cannot explain, right? So that could have all been other drug cartel money or underground, underworld crime money. So I am imagining they made far more than $1.9 billion in laundering money because what I heard was a private banker from some people I knew in New York was that to launder drug money, you're going to get like 30 to 40 percent of whatever money you're laundering. So that's billions of dollars a year to these banks. That's tax free under the table to these banking executives. They're right. pocketing that money. Right. And, you know, there are people that this is what they do for a living. They go after these drug cartels. And they said there is impossible for the executives at the highest levels of HSBC not to know what they were doing. Of they course. say it's literally impossible. Yeah, with that, with that kind of volume, there's no way. And I think it's cash. it's cash business too, Chris. Right. It's 100% cash. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's no way. A guy walks into a, a bank branch with uh, $5 million in a suitcase. Yeah, <laughs> it attracts attention. <laughs> I cannot, because that was $881 million. So that's yeah. happening on a very frequent basis where they're bringing millions and millions of dollars of cash. Yeah. But see, that's what I'm saying, though. I, I think it's, you know, it's sort of like what you were saying earlier, where you privatize the profits and, and you know, socialize the losses, right? It's yeah. the, it's the same thing. The, you're privatizing the fees from these illicit transactions, as you said. It's going into people's pockets, and yet when there's a fine that comes, it's the institution is fined, not the executives. Generally. Yeah, exactly. And the and institutional money is a fiction. It's like when Shell, you know, got fined for fucking up the Gulf of Mexico for two months of oil. You know, like okay, sure. Shell has to pay a billion dollars to the U.S. Treasury or something. But at that level, it's all a fiction. It doesn't, it's, this is all theater for us to think that Shell and the U.S. Treasury are two different things. They're all part of the same, you know, it's like the, the, the gods on Mount Olympus, you know, it's yeah. like, you know, oh, they're all different characters, but they all live on Mount Olympus, man. And up on Mount Olympus, this bullshit doesn't matter. $200 billion sloshing around. It's all just, you know, clicks on a keyboard. It's bullshit. True, true. And most, most people can't even fathom, right, what that amount is. Because once you get into this $200 billion, $500 billion, a trillion, like people say, oh, I know it's a lot of money, but you can't even fathom it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. 
you know, really how yeah. much money that is, right? Because even at a billion dollars, right? I don't, I never understood why people always aspire to all these billionaires as great people. Because I believe you got to be basically a greedy bastard if you have billions of dollars. You're not, I, I can't believe that you're a good person. The reason being is I did a simple calculation, right? Once, if you all have a billion dollars, right? You're earning 10% on that billion, right? You have to spend over a quarter million dollars a day just to spend the interest. And any year, you still have a billion dollars left. So what's the point of having 10 billion, 50 billion, you know, when there are people starving out there, right? If you're a good person, I think you're helping people out, right? Yeah, yeah. that's after you've already got it. And then the question is, what kind of person uh, keeps working after they've already got $10 million? Right. Because the it's there's, the rule of diminishing returns kicks in pretty early. You know, it's like I always say with wine. Right. Like I mm-hmm. can tell the difference between a five dollar bottle of wine and a twenty dollar bottle of wine. But it's harder for me to tell the difference between a twenty dollar bottle of wine and a fifty dollar bottle of wine. And between 50 and 100, I don't know. And, you That's know, true. that I, is true. I mean, I've had like thousand dollar bottles of uh, champagne. I, I I don't know. The only way I know it cost a thousand dollars was that somebody told me. It just tastes like fucking champagne to me. You know, <laughs> I think wine is like art, right? What's that? Like, I think wine is like art as far as pricing. Like, yeah. you know, price expensive wines. Like the prices, whatever they can get, you know, the wealthiest person to pay the most expensive price for. That's yeah. just like what art is, right? Right. There's a difference between shitty art and and really skillful art. But, you know, you can get really skillful art from a guy who's, you know, painting in his studio and sells it to his friends. He doesn't have to be famous and an investment vehicle and all that shit. So, yeah, I mean, I've... I've been around money, as I said, you know, in New York, and, and I've got, like, friends with yachts and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's cool, but it's it's like, uh, you know, a, once you're no longer worried about getting old and retiring and what if I get sick and what if this – once you've got that level of security, it's all an abstraction after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, like, that's what people say, right, about money is that once you have enough not to worry about it, then that should be sufficient. Like, you only worry about when you don't have enough, right? When you worry, I don't have enough to pay, like, my mortgage or my rent or to buy right. put food on the table for my family. But once you have enough not to worry about it, then it should be sufficient. But right. the bankers are sociopaths. They say, oh, I don't, you know, I have already five homes in the world. I want another five. That's right. not enough. You yeah. know, even though I spend three days, you know, an entire year at three of my homes. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's all it's all trying to compensate for, you know, s- small dicks, sm- too big egos, whatever. It's, it's it's as you say, it's psychopath psychopathology. I think it's yeah. Crazy. And, and in fact, like one psychologist, right? They did a study once, according to the, uh, you know, the DSM DSM. I don't know what it is, up, what version you're up to. The diagnostics, four, yeah, the, yeah, the DSM four, right? Yeah. Of like the traits of a sociopath, and they said that. I think um, one Canadian psychologist said like about 1% of the population uh, fits the, the definition of a sociopath, but in the finance industry, it's 10%. Yeah. But then another psychologist who caters specifically to Wall Street bankers said he thinks it's way higher than 10%. Yeah. So it's really interesting. I wonder what it is about, I guess it's just that greed and money and power that attracts people with sociopathic tendencies. Because they said like, 
they fit something like six, at least six out of the 10 characteristics of uh, the DSM-3 definition of a sociopath. Yeah, uh, John Ronson wrote the book, The Sociopath, or The Psychopath Test. Uh, and that's, he did that. He found that correlation much higher on Wall Street. I mean, I think what it comes down to is that they're willing to do what you weren't, right? They're willing to screw over the old guy and lie to him and put his investment, you know, his retirement fund into a bullshit investment. And they don't think about guy might have to go get a job at 80 years old so good good for you that you uh tumbled out of that bullshit and and you're on your own now congratulations for that thanks thanks so listen john uh you got a boogie i got a boogie uh what's your your website where people can read more and find out about your services and all that sure www.smartknowledgeu.com smart knowledge the letter u.com one one all word smart knowledge u.com all right and i also have a blog there too so people are interested in the topics we've been talking about um i put graphs and statistics about how bankers slam gold and silver prices where you can see the actual like real-time graphs that happen where where the bankers dumped like 12 million ounces of gold in 30 minutes on the market to force prices down. So they, you know, and that blog I've been doing for seven years. So there's a wealth of other information on there too, that it's all free. I posted it all for free. Great. Very cool. All right. Well, nice talking to you, man. Thanks for making the time. Sure. Sure. Great talking to you as well. Hope to see you in Bangkok sometime. Yeah, definitely. Look me up if you ever come out here. Will do. Bye-bye. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone, I don't wanna give the end away, but we're gonna die one day. Your body is an animal. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation
And if we must go down, we'll go singing to the smoke alarms. We'll dance into the ground.